We're grateful for an opportunity to look at your word, to look at your word that's living and active, and we don't want to just assume that we understand it. We need your spirit to teach us, to guide us. I pray that none of us here will just be spectators of your word, God, that we will truly be hearers and doers of your word this morning, God. So give me the words. May my words be your words. May we hear what you want us to hear, God. May it be words that impact our hearts and our minds, not because of the words that I say, but because your living and active words, God. So thank you for this time. We ask you to bless it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, somehow, I don't know how it happened, but I have gotten hooked on watching with, with my wife my nie- and my niece who lives with us, and we wait till she gets home from work and everything. I've got hooked into watching these, this show, that this, comp- this competition called, here you get it, oh, you're, 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 I'm embarrassed to even say it, The Great British Baking Show, okay? <laughs> I've been, anybody else watch that show? Okay, oh my gosh. <laughs> if you would have said, a couple months ago, oh, you're going to be into the Great British Baking Show, I would have said, what? <laughs> Who do you think I am? I'm addicted. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just sucked into it. By the way, once again, there's notes for if you, if you want to take the notes, if you want to fill in the blanks, you're free to do that. I'll have that up for you. Uh, but really, what I think it is, it's the, and I don't know what, if you've never seen it before, I think it's the combination of uh, watching these bakers bake these incredible creations that you just, I mean, how do they do that? Some of the time they just told, okay, go do this. And they do these incredible things. But there's also what I really love is there's this camaraderie that happens within these bakers. They really get really close because they're in this competition together. It's not like any of those, those nasty kind of things with a competition, like one of those vote them off the island kind of things. But it's really, I really love seeing how they get into it. So that's kind of what happens. And if you haven't seen it, what makes the contest so demanding is that these bakers are given a certain amount of time to bake their creations, okay? And if their item isn't completely ready in the allotted time that they are given, they face what? They face the possibility of getting eliminated from the show. And then every week there's like a star baker and there's people that are at the bottom. And eventually after a couple things, people get eliminated down to who's the main winner of the whole show. But what we see here is that in this show, what we learn is that being ready at the end of this allotted time is vital for these bakers. Oftentimes I'm always saying, they don't give them enough time. Give them more time. You know, I'm screaming at this thing, give them more time. And, but they don't have enough time. But they have to be completely ready, totally ready. Not only have it baked, but they have to have it all decorated and all that and presented all night. They have to be ready. Now, in our study in the Gospel of Matthew, we have been actually looking at these last few sermons at what Jesus has to say concerning the vital importance of what it means to be ready, to actually be ready for his return, okay? Knowing that it could happen at any time. There's a time limit on this thing. 
So that's what he's, we've been talking about this morning. Now, this theme of being ready for the return of Jesus comes to a climax, okay? It's Jesus, what he's going to do, he's going to tell his final parable. This is really kind of the end of Jesus' Jesus's teaching ministry, in a sense, okay? The prior few parables that we have been looking at, that what they've done is they've really helped us to understand what being ready for his return means in terms of how we as followers are to live our lives. That's what we've been looking at in these last few ones. In the parable that we're going to look at this morning, Jesus is going to show us really the specific criteria that he is going to use to judge people, to judge whether a person is truly ready or not for his return. And he's also going to talk about what the results or the consequences of both being ready and not being ready are. So let's just just dive right into this parable, Matthew chapter 25, and let's start with verse 31 and we're 31 through 33, and this is often referred to as the parable of the sheep and the goat. So let's look, start with verse 31. It says, when the son of man comes to in his glory and all the angels with him, Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. So what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's painting a picture of that great day of judgment when, when he returns and when all the nations, all the nations will stand before him, okay? All the nations will be judged. Now, here's a tricky thing. Depending on your view of eschatology or, or your end times theology, this could mean different things. This could either mean that it'll, this is going to take place for all those people that are still alive during the, the tribulation and the believers that were killed during that time, or it could mean this is going to be for everybody that ever lived. Okay, so that's a sermon for a whole nother day. Actually, I'll never preach that sermon. You go look it up yourself. <laughs> and it's not worth spending a lot of time on, believe me. Okay? But the fact is, and here's the first one on, on your list there. The fact is, no matter when this thing will happen, no matter when, both the righteous and the unrighteous, the saved and the saved, will stand before God and receive the fate they have chosen. This will happen. The judgment day will happen. It is coming. And everybody is going to face that. Now, Jesus describes himself here as the son of man. Okay, he's going to describe himself in a couple different ways as we see in this. And it's important that we understand when he refers to him in different ways, what, we, what he's telling us about himself. When he says he's the son of man, what he's doing here is he's emphasizing his messianic authority. Remember who Jesus is speaking to. Remember, I mean, Matthew's letter is written to Jewish people. So when they hear the son of man, they say, oh, this guy's latching on to, he's proclaiming to be, this is the Messiah. This is what the Messiah that we've always expected who's going to do this, Okay. So it's really a reference to his victory over evil and his complete vindication as he sits on his throne. So he's painting a high picture of himself here. When the Messiah comes, when it's over, when the King of Kings, and he's going to get into that in a minute too, comes, that you've been expecting, this is what he is going to do. 
And really what this is, is this is a fulfillment of things that we've, if you've read in the Old Testament before, has already been said. Daniel had a vision about this very thing. Look at Daniel chapter 7. He says this. Daniel saw a vision. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. And he, came to the ancient, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Are you getting the picture? of? This is the Messiah. This is who he is. This is what people are going to be faced with. Not just some powerful king from earth, but the Messiah that everybody is going to bow down to. And we see here that he says that he will come in his glory with all his angels. I wish I could paint a picture of what that's going to look like. He's going to come with all his angels in all of his glory. So I couldn't even imagine what the glory of the Messiah is like, but he's going to come with all that glory, and not, with, not only with that glory, but all the angels with him. Earlier in that Daniel passage, if you go back a little bit, Daniel describes the amount of angels that attend Jesus at his throne. He says it's a thousand thousands. Now that's not a million, okay? It is a million, but it's not a million. What that means is it's more than you could possibly imagine. You can't even count them. It's just going to be amazing what is going to happen. So Jesus says that when he returns in this amazing glory, what he's going to do is he's going to separate the people like a shepherd separates sheep from goats. Now, although times back then and still times today, they would pasture sheep and goats. You can correct me if I'm wrong. You will know way more. We don't have sheep up there, though, yet. Not true. What have I done? (laughs) But oftentimes sheep and goats were pastured together, and it could be difficult sometimes to distinguish them from one another, depending on when the shearing had happened and all that. It would take some time to figure out which ones were with. Now, the reasons, one of the reasons some people say that he's alluding to this is the fact that oftentimes those that are truly saved and those that appear to be saved can look similar, right? We all know that. They can live together. They can go to church together. They can serve in ministries together. They can do all these things together. And sometimes they're indistinguishable from one another. Yet the point is the chief shepherd knows which is which. There is no hiding. He knows who is truly saved and who is a poser. He knows. There's no getting around it at all. Now, Jesus goes on to show us really the specific criteria by which he has separated the sheep from the goats or the saved from the unsaved. Look at verses 34 to 36. He says, then the king, okay, here we go. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. So once here we go, again, we see Jesus referring to himself, very specifically, refers to himself as the king, 
Okay? Once again, this is reference to his divine nature and to his sonship. See what he's doing here? He's getting, showing people, this is an, I'm, I'm amazing, <laughs> basically. This is an amazing thing that's going to happen, and I am amazing. It's because just in a couple chapters from now, when we get towards the end of the book of Matthew, Jesus is going to say that all authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. Remember when he does that? When he, and when he tells people to go out and make disciples, he says, all authority has been given to me. Okay? It's all been given to me. And we're going to see that this is what he is going to use. What, what he is about to do, he has complete and absolute authority to do so. So no one's going to question him. You go, well, that doesn't make sense. Say, no, he has all the authority to do what he's about to do here. Okay? Notice he refers to those on his right, the sheep, and he says this. says, you who are blessed by my Father... We've talked about this before, what it means to be blessed. This just really refers to enjoying God's favor. That's why we're blessed. As followers of Jesus, we are blessed. I mean, we throw that word around. Don't we a lot? Oh, I'm blessed. Oh, that's a blessing. Bless them, Lord. Blessing. To be blessed by God means to enjoy his favor. Side note. (laughs) God has really been doing this a, a job on me lately. Do we really fathom the amazing, incredible awesomeness of the fact that the God of the universe looks at you and me with favor. With favor. And not just, oh, I think you're okay. You are the apple of his eye. I am the apple of his eye. He loves me. He leaves the 99 for me. I hope that there are times when that just smacks you across the face. That's amazing that we are blessed by God. I don't, who deserves that? But that is an amazing, amazing thing. And that's what he is saying here. It refers to enjoying his good favor. And we see that this blessedness, what it spells out, he spells it out now into an inheritance. We're blessed and we get this inheritance, okay? This recognition of that those who have responded to the gospel, we have actually inherited the kingdom of God. Number two here on your notes, says what this means is as a true follower of Jesus, we not only share in his righteousness now, not only are we seen as right because we have inherited his kingdom, this is the ability to, by the spirit, we can conquer sin and we can grow in holiness, but also in the future kingdom, we will share, but get this, in his kingly reign We're going to share in his kingly reign something that has been prepared since the earth was created. You understand that? That as a follower of Jesus, from the beginning of creation, there has been prepared for you and for me this not only to be righteous before God, but a future of reigning with the king and ruling with the king. Oh my gosh. That is in. Incredible. Incredible. Look what the Apostle Paul told his protege Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, the saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure with him, we will also reign with him. My friends, do you understand what's ahead? 
Do you see what we have now and what's ahead? It's not just heaven, clouds, cling, cling. That's not what's ahead at all. It's raining with our king. Wow. I didn't do anything to deserve that. But I get that because of Jesus. Look at what he says in the book of Revelation. To Revelation chapter 5 says this, and you have made them a kingdom of priests. That's us, kingdom priests to our God. And they shall reign on earth, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Wow. Okay, sorry. I'm just, you can tell I'm this whole idea that we're going to reign with Christ is just amazing to me. So what is it these sheep then? So what is it these sheep, those on his right, have done? What have they specifically done to inherit this reign? Well, Jesus goes on, as we see, to list some of those things. Things he says that they have actually, though, done to him. Okay? He says that they fed him. They quenched his thirst. They welcomed him in. They clothed him. They visited him when he was sick. They visited him in prison. Sounds like they were really nice people, huh? Sounds like they were awesome. Sounds like they were on a mission to do something really great. But look, check out their response in verse 37. He says, then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you in? Or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? They have no idea what he's talking about. We would have remembered that. (laughs) When did we actually do that? If it was you and I heard you were sick, uh, yeah, I would have remembered that. I would have remembered that I came and visited. I would have remembered giving you some clothing, King of Kings. I would have remembered that. So when on earth did I do that? I don't get it. When did we do that? But first of all, before we gets into it, look at how he refers them. Jesus refers to them as the righteous. Notice how he says that? And he didn't say, and those on his right will answer. He says, but the righteous will answer. Look at verse 40. He says, and the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it for one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. This is why he's calling them righteous. He's calling them righteous because when they did it to one of the least of these brothers, you did it to me. Now let's get into that a little bit. Number three on your notes there. The reason Jesus declared them righteous because what they thought was simply meeting human needs was actually living out the most important of all laws, to love God and to love others. He's not saying these are just people out there that were doing nice deeds out there. These are people that don't know God and just doing nice things that they're really into philanthropy. No, he's saying that these people were actually from their hearts living out God's law. They were living out from their relationship with God, they were living out this law of loving God and loving others, and that's how it came. You see, when Jesus tells them that they have been doing these things to the least of these my brothers, 
He's talking about how they have selfishly met the needs of fellow believers. That's why he says, my brothers here. He's talking about how they specifically went and met the needs of brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember back in chapter 10 and back in chapter 18 where Jesus said this? It'll be up on the screen. It says, and whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is my disciple, truly I say to you, he will be in no, by no means lose his reward. And he says, but whoever causes one of these little ones, talking about the same thing, who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. As we talked about in those sermons back then, to Jesus, little ones represent those with childlike faith and humility. Remember that? We talked about that. When he's talking about little ones, he's talking about those that have childlike faith and those that have humility and need, know, know their need in God. Remember which we talked about, which is, is seen as one of the great character, greatest characteristics and be one of the most valued things in the kingdom of heaven. Remember that? The mark of a true follower of Jesus is what? Childlike humility and deep dependence on God. So that's who he's talking about. That's who he's talking about that they did these things too. So he, Jesus is saying, whether they knew it or not, whether they knew, okay, that's a believer, I'm going to intentionally go serve them. Whether they knew it or not, they showed compassion to and met the needs of fellow, fellow believers as if they were doing it to Jesus himself. And they didn't even know it. Because they were meeting the needs of fellow brothers and sisters, they were doing it to Jesus. Now, Jesus isn't talking about works righteousness here. I know that's something that trips people up a lot of times, the whole idea. Okay, and this, actually this parable has been used to defend works righteousness. And works righteousness is this uh, form of self-righteousness that what it does, it believes that our salvation can be earned or it can be sustained by doing good works. It says that we can make ourselves righteous before God by our obedience. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not saying that because we all know the Bible clearly teaches that salvation is an unmerited gift of God. It's not because of our own works, but because of the works of Jesus Christ on our behalf. That's what makes us righteous. Make sense? That's what makes us righteous, not what we do. I don't know about you, but it's easy for my flesh oftentimes to go, that was a great thing you did. And feel like it gave me a little bit better standing with God a little bit. That's, from the, that's a lie from the pit of hell. I can't get any more righteous before God. Because Jesus is the reason for my righteousness. That's what's so good about that. And speaking of uh, what, well, what he's doing here, um, is Jesus is saying that he identifies with his people. Jesus identifies with us so deeply that he actually, get this, he experiences what our experience. What is done to us is done to him. Isn't that amazing how connected we are to Jesus? What's what done to us is done to him. And speaking of how we treat other believers, Jesus said this. Remember back in 18, chapter 18, it says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives who? Me. Receives me as well. 
D.A. Carson, the great D.A. Carson writes this, Jesus identifies himself with the fate of his followers and makes compassion for them equivalent to compassion for himself. Getting it here? Are we seeing how important it is to minister to one another? Fourth point on your notes there. The point Jesus is making is how we treat other believers demonstrates the nature of our relationship with Jesus and is a sign of our attitude towards him. That's a bold statement. But that's what the word is teaching us. This, my friends, this is the specific criteria Jesus will use in judging if a person is truly ready for his return, if they are truly a disciple of his. And number five on your notes there, the reality is that our love for and our unity with fellow believers is what displays our love for Jesus. Obviously, there's other things that we can do that show our love for Jesus and how we are committed to him. But the word of God, especially what we're looking at right now, is very, very explicit about this point. How we love each other, how we are united with each other, how we serve one another, that is what will display our love for Jesus. I don't care how much you serve, how much you give to the church, to ministries out there, to other things. It's how you love fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. John 13, 35 says this, familiar to many of us. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How will people know that we're followers of Jesus? What's the, what's the way Jesus says? By how well you know how to witness to somebody. By how well you stay away from sin. That's what we think, don't we? I gotta have my I gotta get my life cleaned up. If I once my life looks good, then I'll start sharing my faith and then it'll make sense. No. He's saying right here, people will know that you're my disciple by the love that you have for one another. Again, Jesus, you remember his high priestly prayer what's called his high priestly prayer, where Jesus prayed. This is where Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed shortly before he was arrested. He makes this request of his Father concerning us. Check this out. John 17, he says this, and that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one, even as we are one. And in them, I in them, and you in me, and they, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you loved me. Catch what Jesus, do you catch what Jesus is saying here? This is so powerful what he's saying. What he's saying, because, because we are one in Christ, because we are fellow partakers of his divine nature, our love for one another, our, our unity is to resemble, and this is mind-blowing, the love and the unity that the Father and the Son have for one another. Wow. 
The same unity that, G- think about it, Jesus and his Father, the unity and the love they have for one another, that's the love that Jesus desires that we have and that we strive to have for one another. About these verses, commentator William Hendrickson says this. He says, the oneness for which Christ makes request is more than ethical unity. It is, one, it is a oneness so intimate, so vital, so personal that it is patterned after and based on the relations which exist between the persons of the Holy Trinity. It is a oneness not only of faith, hope, and love, but of life itself. Number six on your notes, though. So the result of this, the result is that our love for one another should shout to the world that Jesus was sent by God to die for our sins because of his great love for us. Are you getting his message here? What's the big evangelism thing? What's the biggest impact that's going to have on the world that they understand, oh my gosh, Jesus loves me. God sent him to die for my sins. Is it the articulate preacher preaching that message? What is he saying it is right here? Yes. Our unity, our love for one another. That's the loudest message. That should shout to the world. And you know what? I think that's the very reason the world does not see this message. Not that we're bad people. But I think this is the enemy's number one of the top number one things that he does is if he can cause us to enjoy being together, that's great. We enjoy being together. We enjoy sharing a meal together. We enjoy hanging out together, but really loving one another. Being willing to sit with one another, being willing to enter into each other's lives in a deep way. By the way, that doesn't happen here on Sunday morning. I'm not bashing Sunday morning. I'm just saying, if this is your version of church, if this is church, you're missing it. This is not church. This is part of it. This is a small, this should be a small part of what we do as church or who we are as church. So how then do we cultivate this? How do we cultivate this love for and unity with our fellow believers which is essential in our witness to the world. How do we, I mean, how do we take steps to proactively and intentionally grow in our love for and unity with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, number seven there, first and foremost, we need to make it a priority to truly know our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And like I said, I don't mean just know, I mean to know one another, to know each other's joys, to know each other's sorrows, our needs, our hurts, what our gifts are so we can serve one another, our strength, our story, where we've come from, where we desire to go. And we do this all so that we can truly love one another. We can truly love the person for who they truly are. I mean, how can we pray for another or share our resources with another if we don't know each other's deepest needs? How can we? You know how many needs go unmet in the church because people just don't know of them? How can we encourage one or another in our walk with Jesus if we don't know where each other is in their walk with Jesus? And all we see is, praise the Lord, good morning, brother, how you doing? How can we possibly help? 
How can we possibly serve them? How can we use our spiritual gifts, the gifts that God has given us for the purpose of building up the body if we don't know what's happening within the body? How can I know? I mean, I know what my gifts are. One of them is teaching. But that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm always taking advantage of every opportunity to teach. I need to know what's going on in the body. Some of you are administrative, you're helpful, you're leaders, you're encouragers, you're what, all these different gifts out there, and you're not using it. And it's not because you're doing something bad, it's because you don't, you just don't know people. We don't know one another. And that's what he's saying, that's what this is all about here. Number eight, the Christian life was never meant to be lived in isolation. Never meant to lead, live that. It's meant to be lived in full view of those who love us in order that they can help, we can help one another to become more and more like Jesus. Is anybody uncomfortable yet? I hope so. I am. This is a tall order. This means that maybe you haven't been doing church totally right. I don't know. And this cannot and will not, like I said, happen just at church on Sunday mornings or even coming to Bible study if we're not fully willing to participate and make ourselves known. It just won't. It will not happen. This is why we're taking steps in many ways. Just so you, I, God has just really laid this on my heart lately that we need to be praying about church and how we do church and what we consider ourselves as church what that means. And being willing to do whatever the, wherever the Lord leads us to do that, whether it's meeting in homes, whatever. Not just to be, try something new and tricky and let's try something, let's try something, let's mix it up a little bit. No. But in order that so we can truly know one another and we can love one another and use our gifts and truly disciple one another and be involved in each other's lives and get to know people that we would never get to know before. Can you imagine if we're sitting in a room of people and we invite a non-Christian in and after a while they get to know everybody in that group, they look around, they go, I would have never put all you people in the same room together. But man, you guys seem to really love one another. You're meeting each other's needs. This is amazing. That's what he's talking about here. Now Jesus goes on here to address the people on his left, okay, the goats. And we'll just read the rest of the path, most of the rest of the passage, he says. Verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed. You cursed, you into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they, also, then they also will answer and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. Now notice the words that are spoken to those on the left are really, in many ways, a mirror image of those on the right. But instead, instead of telling them to come to him, he tells them to depart or go away from him. Instead of being blessed, 
He says that they're cursed. And instead of sharing in this kingly authority and reign, they receive what? Eternal punishment. What these verses tell us is once again, not that acts of compassion and mercy can save a person. That's not what it's saying. But that are acts of compassion and mercy towards other believers that come from a heart of deep love for Jesus is a result of an outpouring of our love for him. As we love Jesus, we want to meet their needs. And the lack of doing so shows our, our lack of desire to do so shows really our lack of love for Jesus really does. Point number nine. The point of this parable is the importance of making priority of pursuing love for and unity with our fellow believers, which is prompted by our love for Jesus. Now, obviously, this is a nome. This, this parable, don't remember, parables are for a specific reason. Now, Jesus isn't saying that we don't show compassion and mercy towards those that don't follow Jesus. Don't get that. That's not what he's saying here at all. Remember, Jesus even told us we're to go as far as to love and pray for those that even persecute us. So that's, so that's not what he's saying here, okay? What he's, he, this is what we're talking about is our love for one another. And this is no small issue. Look at what Jesus says the consequences for both the sheep and the goats are. Look what he says in verse six, the last verse there. He says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So while the sheep get to go off into eternal life in paradise, the goats go away into eternal punishment. Now, whether this eternal punishment mentioned above in verse 41 is really actually eternal fire that's prepared for the devil and his angels is a metaphor or not, that's not the point. The point here is that the punishment for those unwilling to show love and compassion and mercy Due to their lack of love for Jesus, it's going to be awful. It's going to be absolutely awful. So what does it look like to be ready? What does it look like to truly be ready for the return of Jesus that could happen any time? It means loving, serving, and meeting the needs of our fellow followers of Jesus out of our deep love for him. Number 10 on the last one, a good barometer of your love for Jesus is your desire to love and serve his people. And no way is this meant to be a guilt trip on anybody at all. Use it as a barometer. Maybe there's some of you in this room that need to say, wow, I really don't love Jesus like I thought I did. I mean, you're not a follower of his. Maybe, you, maybe you're not. But maybe this is a good time this morning for you to do a little work inside to realize, wow, my love for Jesus, if I use that as a barometer, I, I, I've, I've neglected him. I've neglected my love relationship with him. Life has gotten in the way, and life does that. Life gets hard. And if the enemy can get, any, do it, get us to do anything to get our mind off of the incredible love that Christ has for us and our overwhelming love for him, he will do it. Even with good things, he will do it. 
I want to encourage and challenge all of us. This, this is including myself. I want to challenge us to step out of our comfort zones in order to deepen our relationships with one another. I mean, not for the purpose of adding more friends. Frankly, I don't need any more friends. Not that I have a million friends, but I'm not on the journey to add more friends, okay? What I do need, though, is I need to grow deeper in my love for you and my unity with you. That's what I need. Desperately need that. I need you to love me. I need to love you more. I need to be unified with you more so that we can encourage each other in our faith and we can together display his incredible love for a broken world. Don't you want that? I want that. I need that. I need you guys. I need you desperately for myself but also because I want to reach this world. I want to reach Pacifica. I want to reach the coast. And I'm learning, and God is teaching me that it's going to happen as we love each other, as we unify together, as we get to know each other, as we meet each other's needs, as we use our gifts to, to, reach, to build up the body of Christ. That's what's going to do it. Now, that gets me excited about doing church. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of. Because that's the kind of church that Jesus is asking us to be. And when that is happening, we can know without a shadow of a doubt that we are ready. We're ready for his return. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for, once again, your, your word. And I know how it's, much it's convicted me and, and really shaped, shaped the way I think and I just want to ask that you would do a work in our hearts right now. I just want to, I just want to stay quiet just for a second. If Lindsay, you have to just play a little bit. I just want to give you an opportunity to do some of that work with Jesus right now. If you need to confess to him. But most of all, I would ask that you would ask Jesus to show his love to you. Make it so real. And that out of that, you will just be so in love with him. And that he will show you how to love and serve the body. Take a minute.